Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news. And on this evening's program, I'll be talking about things to do with the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and we'll make some sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, and also better educating the general public about mental health issues. And I'll do that without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. And welcome to this evening's program. Uh, this program was pre-recorded for first airing on Wednesday evening, September the 30th, 2015. Wow, only a few more months left to the year. How about that? Well, in any case, uh, I think of all the things that I compiled for tonight's program, this first one I thought would be the most pertinent to talk to you about uh, because I always talk about links between the mind and the brain and behavior and even in the intro to the show that I just gave you. So this fits in perfectly with that theme. The article says, are you feeling anxious? Well, check your orbitofrontal cortex and cultivate your optimism. A new study links anxiety, a brain structure called the orbitofrontal cortex, and optimism, finding that healthy adults who have larger orbitofrontal cortices tend to be more optimistic and less anxious. <laughs> So here we have a direct link between some aspect of mood and behavior and a very specific structure in the brain. This new analysis reported in the journal Social, Cognitive, and Affective Neuroscience offers the first evidence that optimism plays a mediating role in the relationship between the size of the orbitofrontal cortex and anxiety. Anxiety disorders afflict roughly 44 million people in the United States. These disorders disrupt lives and cost an estimated 42 billion to 47 billion dollars annually. Now the orbitofrontal cortex, a brain region located just behind the eyes, is known to play a role in anxiety. The orbitofrontal cortex integrates intellectual and emotional information and is essential to behavioral regulation. Previous studies have found links between the size of a person's orbitofrontal cortex and his or her susceptibility to anxiety. For example, in a well-known study of young adults whose brains were imaged before and after a colossal 2011 earthquake and tsunami in Japan, researchers discovered that the orbitofrontal cortex 
actually shrank in some study subjects within four months of the disaster. Those with more orbital frontal cortex shrinkage were likely to also be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Other studies have shown that more optimistic people tend to be less anxious and that optimistic thoughts increase orbital frontal cortex activity. The research team on this new study hypothesized that a larger orbital frontal cortex might act as a buffer against anxiety, in part by boosting optimism. Most studies of anxiety focus on those who have been diagnosed with anxiety disorders. Now, if there can be shrinkage of the orbital frontal cortex, and that shrinkage is associated with anxiety disorders, what does it mean in healthy populations that have larger orbital frontal cortices? Specifically, could having a larger orbital frontal cortex have a protective role? The researchers also wanted to know whether optimism was part of the mechanism linking larger orbital frontal cortex brain volumes to lesser anxiety. Researchers collected MRI scans of 61 healthy young adults and analyzed the structure of a number of regions in their brains, including the orbital frontal cortex. The researchers calculated the volume of gray matter in each brain region relative to the overall volume of the brain. The study subjects also completed tests that assessed their optimism and anxiety, depression symptoms, and positive or enthusiastic and interested, and negative or irritable and upset affect or um, emotional displays. A statistical analysis and modeling revealed that a thicker orbital frontal cortex on the left side of the brain corresponded to higher optimism and less anxiety. The model also suggested that optimism played a mediating role in reducing anxiety in those with larger orbital frontal cortices. Further analysis ruled out the role of other positive personality traits in reducing anxiety, and no other brain structures appear to be involved in reducing anxiety by boosting optimism. You can say, okay, there is a relationship between the orbital frontal cortex and anxiety. What do I do to reduce anxiety? Well, optimism is one of the factors that can be targeted. Optimism has been investigated in social psychology for many years, but somehow only recently did researchers start to look at functional and structural associations of this trait in the brain in order to know if we are consistently optimistic about life, would that leave a mark in the brain? Future studies should test whether optimism can be increased and anxiety reduced by training people in tasks that engage the orbital frontal cortex or by finding ways to boost optimism directly.
If you can train people's responses, the theory is that over longer periods, their ability to control their responses on a moment-by-moment basis will eventually be embedded in their brain structure. Well, in my opinion, it's fascinating that you can drill down to one specific region of the brain to look at the interaction between things like degree of anxiety and levels of optimism, and that this also ties in with how people who are more optimistic tend to be less anxious. Uh, But as to the take-home message for someone who is suffering from anxiety, uh, what can you do to leverage these findings? Well, uh, work on becoming more optimistic. Start by trying to counteract the negative pessimistic thoughts. Cognitive behavioral therapy is extremely helpful in this regard. And, um, of course, working with a therapist to help you with getting rid of the negative pessimistic thoughts and replacing them with optimistic ones can be very helpful. If you don't have the resources for therapy, for example, if you just can't afford it, you don't have health insurance or your health insurance doesn't cover it, um, I highly recommend uh, two books. One is Feeling Good, The New Mood Therapy by David Burns, and uh, the other one is Anxiety and Phobia Workbook. Both of them are been in their fourth printing or more and uh, are available in paperback. And they tend to give you specific practical strategies for dealing with anxiety. Um, Dr. Burns' book, especially, Feeling Good, The New Mood Therapy, uh, works to help you counteract negative pessimistic thoughts, gives you actual homework exercises to do, uh, and have you write down your negative thoughts and forces you to do exercises to come up with a positive one to counteract it. Um, it takes work. It takes practice. It's not like it just comes. But, you know, with persistence and work, you too can be more optimistic and, and that will likely reduce your anxiety. Um, it's not likely that you're going to be able to go have your brain imaged so that we can see if this new optimistic attitude has actually increased the size of your orbital frontal cortex, but it's nice to speculate that it would. Well, next up on Psychiatry Today, another article having to do with the brain and certain mood and certain emotions. Turns out that lonely people's brains work differently. Well, one of the saddest things about loneliness is that it leads to what psychologists call a negative spiral. People who feel isolated come to dread bad social experiences, and they lose faith that it's possible to enjoy good company. The usual result is more loneliness. This hardly seems adaptive, but experts say it's because we've evolved to enter a self-preservation mode when we're alone. Without the backup of friends and family, our brains become alert to threat, especially the potential danger posed by strangers. Until now, much of the evidence to support this account has come from behavioral studies. For example, when shown a video depicting a social scene, 
Lonely people spend more time than others looking at signs of social threat, such as a person being ignored by their friends or one person turning their back on another. Unpublished work also shows that lonely people's attention seems to be grabbed more quickly by words that pertain to social threat, such as rejected or unwanted. Well, when we come back from our first commercial break, we'll talk about how researchers have uh, found evidence of difference uh, in the brain between people who are lonely and who aren't. And we'll also have more mental health news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Staying on course without support is tough. With help from family and community, you get valuable support for recovery from a mental or substance use disorder. Join the Voices for Recovery. Visible. Vocal. Valuable. For confidential information on mental and substance use disorders, including prevention and treatment referral for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, neuropsychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about studies showing that there are actual differences in the way the brain works, whether someone is lonely or not. Now, researchers provide the first evidence that lonely people's brains, compared to the non-lonely, are exquisitely alert to the difference between social and non-social threats. The finding was reported online in the journal Cortex, and it supports their broader theory that, for evolutionary reasons, Loneliness triggers a cascade of brain-related changes that put us into a socially nervous, vigilant mode. The researchers used a loneliness questionnaire to recruit 38 very lonely people and 32 people who didn't feel lonely. Note that loneliness was defined here as the subjective feeling of isolation as opposed to the number of friends or close relatives one has. Next, 
The researchers placed an electrode array of 128 sensors on each of the participants' heads, allowing them to record the participants' brain waves using a technique known as EEG, or electroencephalography, that's particularly suited to measuring brain activity changes over very short time periods. With the apparatus in place, the participants were asked to look at various words on a computer screen and to indicate with keyboard keys as quickly as possible what color they were written in. This is an adaptation of a classic psychology test known as the Stroop test. The idea is that since participants are asked to focus not on the word itself but on its color, any influence that the word's meaning has on the participant is considered to be automatic and subconscious. Some of the words were social and positive in nature, for example, belong and party. Some were social and negative, for example, alone and solitary, while others were emotionally positive but non-social, for example, joy, and others were non-social and emotionally negative, for example, sad. The researchers were specifically interested in when and how the participants' brains responded to the sight of negative words that were social in nature compared to those that were non-social. To do this, they analyzed the participants' brain waves to see when, after looking at different word types, their brains enter discrete microstates, which are periods of relative stability when a sustained pattern of brain regions are activated. When the brain enters a new microstate, this is a sign that it has initiated a new mental operation, that it's processing some stimulus in a new way. For the first 280 milliseconds, about one quarter of a second, after a word was shown on the screen, lonely people's brains entered a series of three discrete microstates that were identical whether a negative word was socially relevant or not. After that point, however, their brains entered a distinct microstate in response to socially negative words, with activation particularly notable in neural areas involved in the control of attention, suggesting that they had entered a highly vigilant mode. By comparison, non-lonely people's brains continued to respond with the same microstates to social and non-social negative words for a full 480 milliseconds, or nearly half a second. Now, this difference between lonely and non-lonely people's brains might sound extremely subtle, but this is an important finding because it shows how lonely people's brains are primed at a basic level to tune into social threats more quickly than is normal. Because these effects occurred so early on in the lonely participants' response to negative social words, 
And because this was all done in the context of the Stroop test, where you focus on the words color, not the meaning, the researchers say this shows lonely people's vigilance to social threat is an implicit non-conscious bias. In other words, it's not something they're aware of. The participants weren't even meant to be paying attention to the word's meaning, yet lonely people picked up on the difference between a socially threatening word and a negative non-social word more quickly than non-lonely people did. In a real-world context, this is a troubling finding. When people feel most alone, these results suggest that their brains are not tuned in to smiles and laughter. They're switched on to frowns and snarls. They're vigilantly looking out for negativity without really knowing it. This might have helped our distant ancestors stay alive back when lacking social ties was more of a direct threat to one's well-being than it is today, making it evolutionarily adaptive. But in the modern world, it's a stressful, unhelpful state to be in. It might even help explain why lonely people often have poorer health and shorter lives than people who connected, who feel connected and cared for. So there you have it. Um, lonely people tend to be more sensitive to negative social cues in the environment, uh, therefore continuing a downward spiral further into loneliness and isolation. Uh, kind of sobering and sad to say the least. <clears throat> well, next up on tonight's program, uh, this is going to be a, somewhat of a lesson in chronobiology, that is, uh, the biology of our time clocks. The article is called Four Weird Ways Early Birds and Night Owls Differ. And I thought to myself, hmm, they're saying that early birds and night owls differ in weird ways? I wonder what they could mean by that. So let's see what they're talking about. Now, how and when you sleep whether you're an early bird or a night owl, and by the way, I've seen early birds referred to as larks in other articles around this issue. They picked the name of another bird, the night owl, and the, is someone who likes to stay up late and sleep in, and the lark is someone who goes to bed early and gets up early. But which type you are says a lot about you. Those individual inclinations to either be a morning person or a night person are referred to as chronotypes. Morning people, known as larks, tend to go to bed early and wake up early, reaching their peak performance early in the day. Evening people, on the other hand, the owls, are inclined to go to bed late and sleep late. These are the folks who don't come alive until later in the afternoon. Your chronotype can greatly impact your life, including personality, lifestyle, and even your health. Keep in mind, though, that while science can tell us a lot about human behavior, 
People vary greatly on an individual basis. So while you might consider yourself a night owl, it's possible that not all of these will apply to you. This may help you to learn what your sleep schedule says about you and how you can use that to your advantage. The first way in which larks and owls differ is in their social personalities. Larks are more inclined than owls to stick to a plan and achieve it. Larks tend to have less depression and less disruption of focus. And they also more often have so a better self-control and a better ability to delay gratification. On the other hand, owls tend to be fun folks, more impulsive, outgoing, risk-takers, more creative. A study in the journal Learning and Individual Differences showed owls to be positively related to cognitive ability and negatively related to academic achievement, while larks were negatively related to cognitive ability and positively related to academic indicators. Hmm. That description there kind of bothered me. It makes it sound like larks should be stigmatized against being uh, boring bookworms and night owls, uh, people who don't do as well in school and just stay all, stay up all night partying. It seems uh, rather an unfortunate stereotype. All right, well, one other way in which the two types differ is in their career paths. Larks seem inclined toward more conventional lifestyles, while night owls often gravitate toward the arts and entrepreneurial endeavors. Uh, there is a pattern with people getting more creative inspiration at night. In the corporate world, odds are stacked in favor of larks. If an individual is a night owl, but working in corporate America where early meetings and future orientation are the rule, job performance can suffer, and work relationships can be fraught with difficulty, bringing on low self-esteem and a general unhappiness with life. Conversely, if an individual is a lark, but trying to adapt to a present-oriented, risk-taking, late-night lifestyle, they may disproportionately suffer from fatigue, exhaustion, and difficulty keeping their thoughts straight. With these self-esteem effects and general unhappiness, that can develop as a result. <clears throat> well, so, again, this is not um, unlike the first uh, way in which larks and owls differ. Again, it describes the larks as being better able to be uh, high achieving and make it in the corporate world because uh, they're more on the normal schedule of corporate America. All right, we have two more ways in which larks and owls differ, but we've got to take a commercial break here, so I'll bring that to you when we come back from that. And more mental health-related news, you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. 
Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. Please join us at 4 p.m. on Tuesday afternoons. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And the current topic on tonight's program is ways in which night owls and larks, or late risers versus early risers, differ. So far we've talked about how their social personalities and career paths may differ. Let's talk about their biology. Larks tend to have lower heart rates, half as much incidence of sleep apnea, and also lower body weights than night owls. Owls, on the other hand, often have lower levels of HDL cholesterol, which is not a good thing. The HDL is your good cholesterol. They tend to be snorers, which indicates higher incidence of sleep apnea, which is also not a good thing. That's a risk factor for heart attack and stroke and high blood pressure. And owls also tend to have higher levels of cortisol, the stress hormone. Owls are usually more anxious and depressed than larks, have a higher incidence of ADHD, consume greater amounts of caffeine and alcohol, and experience higher rates of addiction. Morning people are more stress resilient and have a higher level of life satisfaction with less substance abuse. Owls, however, can stay better focused throughout the day, whereas a lark's attention wanes by mid-afternoon. Wow, sure sounds like biology tends to heavily favor the larks, doesn't it? Pretty scary, the uh, owl lifestyle seems to be associated with some very serious health problems. Uh, Lower HDL cholesterol, sleep apnea, higher cortisol, which affects all organ systems, and then higher rates of addiction, higher rates of ADHD. Hmm, not so good there. All right, and the fourth way in which night owls and larks differ is eating habits, which I guess 
follows somewhat from what we just talked about with their biology. Larks typically eat breakfast sooner after waking than owls, who tend to like to consume late-night meals. After 8 p.m., owls consume twice as many calories as larks. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? They're more likely to be awake much later, so they're going to get hungry again. But these meals may not be as satisfying or filling because the hormone leptin is typically at its lowest level in the evening, decreasing the sense of satiety. <clears throat> That's right, leptin uh, is what usually triggers hunger. So as a result, it's easier for owls to overeat, which can lead to issues with obesity and weight management, hence what we talked about before with the sleep apnea, which is associated with um, higher body weight, And further, because owls stay up late yet must rise early for work, they are more likely to be sleep-deprived, and sleep deprivation can uh, lead to dysregulation of leptin and ghrelin, the appetite and hunger hormones, resulting in the overeating of carbohydrate-rich foods, especially refined sugar. Hmm. Well, after examining all that, it left me feeling that the article was really rather skewed as far as uh, a favorable look at larks and very unfavorable look at night owls. Um, <clears throat> made me think of uh, maybe the people who wrote the article or did all the studying for it were larks themselves and um have something against the night owl lifestyle. But it does give you pause. Um, it, it would seem to be helpful for night owls to tone it down a little bit, given this information. I want to get back to something the article mentioned about normal levels of certain hormones. Uh, they mentioned leptin and ghrelin. Uh, these are the uh, appetite Uh, and satiety hormones, and they mention how leptin is at its lowest level in the evening. Our bodies secrete different levels, or different hormones, at different levels, at different times of the day. This is all part of chronobiology. Um, there's lots of different hormones. There's those appetitive hormones. There's thyroid hormone, growth hormone, insulin Uh, the female and male reproductive hormones, depending on uh, whether someone is male or female, of course. And all of this proceeds on a different type of schedule, um, either certain time after sleep, certain time after being awake. Uh, it also is very much tied in with the light-dark cycle. And as we know, the light-dark cycle, day-night, is supposed to be tied together with the sleep-wake cycle. And except for those <clears throat> unfortunates among us who have to work nights instead of days, the sleep-wake cycle is synced up with the light-dark day-night cycle. Now, if you disrupt that, 
by staying up unusually late, then you are going to get your body out of sync with these normal hormonal fluctuations. And so in that sense, it very much does make sense that a night owl would suffer some health consequences compared to a lark who doesn't fight our normal biology as much, including the normal schedule of secretion of these various different hormones at different times of the day, which are all kind of pre-programmed and timed to help the body's metabolic functions uh, work optimally. <clears throat> well, so I guess bottom line is it is uh, a word to the wise to the night owl. Uh, try to be more like a lark more of the time. Not that you have to give up your night owl lifestyle all the time, but uh, health-wise it would benefit you to be more like a lark more of the time. Well, here is an article about staying on time. Now, when I saw this article, Eight Tips to Stay on Time, the first thing I thought of was patients with ADHD or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Again, it's not called ADD. It's called ADHD. Whether or not you have hyperactivity, well, there's the inattentive only type, there's the hyperactive impulsive type, and there's the combined type, which has features of both of the first two types, but they're all called ADHD. In any case, it's been a consistent observation of mine, and it's a well-known characteristic of ADHD patients that they have trouble staying on time. Uh, there's a tendency to just not be able to gauge how long things should take, how much time there is to get something done, how long it will take to get somewhere, and with the consequence that people with ADHD are very often late to get where they're going. Now, so when I saw the title of this article, Eight Tips to Staying on Time, I said, well, maybe there's some helpful hints that uh, my patients and other people with ADHD would be able to make use of. So let's see what the article has to say. Although we can all at some point miss our train time, accidentally sleep through the alarm, or forget a needed item and have to head back home, consistent lateness can become a huge stressor for you and those around you if not addressed. Many people have the habit of constantly running late and they drive themselves and other people crazy. Feeling as though you're always running 20 minutes behind schedule is an unhappy feeling. Having to rush, forgetting things in your haste, dealing with annoyed people when you arrive, it's no fun. If you find yourself chronically late, what steps can you take to be more prompt? That depends on why you're late. The first step is to identify the problem. Then you can see more easily what you need to change. There are many reasons you might be late, but some are particularly common. Are you late because, number one, you sleep too late? 
If you're so exhausted in the morning that you sleep until the last possible moment, it's time to think about going to sleep earlier. Many people don't get enough sleep, and sleep deprivation is a real drag on your happiness and health. Try to turn off the light sooner each night. I have to say I agree heartily with that tip. I mean, if you get a good night's sleep, it's much easier to get up on time, and getting up on time definitely sets uh, the tone for the day. Stay on time the rest of the day. Number two, and I think this is the big one, uh, one of the big ones rather for patients with ADHD. Do you try to get one last thing done? Apparently, this is a common cause of tardiness, and again, in my personal observation. Uh, more so in patients with ADHD. If you always try to answer one more email or put away one more load of laundry before you leave, here's a way to outwit yourself. Take a task that you can do when you reach your destination and leave early. Tell yourself that you need that 10 minutes on the other end to read those brochures or check those figures. Well, I think that's a good way of identifying the problem. Uh, certainly trying to do the proverbial one more thing, I think, is a major cause of tardiness. But trying to take a task with you to where you're going doesn't always work. Um, I think maybe something more behavioral, like setting an alarm, uh, at which point you just have to be disciplined enough to say, all right, when that alarm goes off, I have to stop what I'm doing, leave it until later, and go, or I'm going to be late. All right, well, we have six more on-time tips to go through, but time for another commercial break. So let me pause here. We'll come back with the rest of this article and more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. 
learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine, understand Obamacare, and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, you're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And right now we're going over eight tips to stay on time. So far we've been through number one, not sleeping too late. Go to bed early, get enough sleep, get up on time. Number two was don't try to just get one more thing done. Stop when it's time to leave so you don't get uh, to where you're going late. Number three, do you underestimate the commute time? You may tell yourself it takes 20 minutes to get to work, but if it actually takes 40 minutes, you're going to be chronically late. Have you exactly identified the time by which you need to leave? Have a precise time that you're supposed to leave so you know if you're running late and by how much. That kind of goes along with the not trying to get one last thing done type of thing, but, but really it is more specific to leaving to get to work or specific appointments. Uh, again, if you're always late, you're probably not estimating the commute time properly, uh, taking into account the effects of bad weather or traffic such as we have here in the metro Atlanta area. Uh, so, yes, you have to be realistic about the commute time. And then once you are, you have to leave when it's time to leave. All right. Number four tip to stay on time. It has to do with misplacing things. You can't find your keys, your wallet, your phone, your sunglasses. Nothing is more annoying than searching for lost objects when you're running late. Designate a place in your house for your key items and put those things in that spot every time. Now, this particular tip definitely relates to uh, what I've observed in treating my patients who have ADHD. Misplacing things is one of the key symptoms of that disorder and I find that many people with ADHD compensate for it by having one place in their house that's exactly as it is described in this tip. It's a catch-all for all the important things like what's listed, keys, wallet, cell phone, sunglasses, what have you. And that way, they're less likely to wander around everywhere looking for them. Um, it can be a drawer. It can be a little basket or box, uh, a hook, what have you. Uh, but somehow or another, there's one place where all that important stuff is kept all the time. It's a good idea. Now, <clears throat> tip number five, are other people in your house disorganized? Your wife can't find her phone. Your son can't find his Spanish book. So you're late. Now, as hard as it is to get yourself organized, it's even harder to help other people get organized. So the suggestion is try setting up the key things place in your house for them. Prod your children to get their school stuff organized the night before. 
and coax the outfit changing types to pick their outfits the night before too, get their lunches ready, etc. Well, that's easier said than done. <clears throat> so right here, this tip is designed for a different story. It's when you're not the disorganized one who misplaces things or may forget things if they're not laid out beforehand. It's the other people in your house who have that issue, and that's why you wind up being late and not on time. Well, the suggestions certainly make a lot of sense, but I question uh, how well you're going to be able to get everyone else in the house to comply with your wishes in terms of uh, trying to be more organized. Number six, your coworkers won't end meetings on time. Well, this is certainly an exasperating problem. You're supposed to be someplace else, but you're trapped in a meeting that's going long. Sometimes this is inevitable, but if you find it happening over and over, identify the problem. Is too little time allotted to meetings that deserve more time? Is the weekly staff meeting 20 minutes of work crammed into 60 minutes? If you face this issue repeatedly, there's probably an identifiable problem. And once you identify it, you can develop strategies to solve it. For example, sticking to an agenda, circulating information by email, not preventing discussions about contentious philosophical questions not relevant to the tasks at hand, etc. That last problem is surprisingly widespread. Now, the suggestion is certainly sensible and valid. However, what if you're not the one setting the agenda and the time for the meeting? You're just stuck having to attend it and stay in there until it's finished and you wind up being late for something else. Then you're not necessarily in a position to implement the solutions in, that are suggested because you're not making the agenda. You're not the one sending out the emails and you're not the one guiding the discussion in, away from contentious issues not relevant to the task at hand. So what do you do then? Well, my suggestion is if you know this is a problem and it's likely to happen, you have to adjust your schedule knowing that the meeting is going to bleed over the time that it's officially blocked off for and leave your schedule open during that time. So if this meeting always runs 10 or 15 minutes late, then schedule the end of the meeting time on your personal schedule or agenda uh, to take that into account. And don't schedule your next meeting or activity or appointment or whatever it is uh, until a little later time so that when the, the meeting inevitably bleeds over late, it's not going to interfere with whatever your next activity is. Again, this takes a level of thought and planning and organization. Uh, so none of these tips are just simple, easy, quick fixes. Number seven, have you considered how your behavior affects someone else? Well, a friend was chronically late dropping off her son at sports activities until 
The child said, you're always late dropping me off because it doesn't affect you, but you're always on time to pick me up because you'd be embarrassed to be the last parent to pick up. She was never late again. Now, that's certainly a pretty tough example for uh, someone to have to take that very direct <laughs> feedback from their own son about how uh, their parent's lateness is having a negative effect on him. Uh, so rather than wait for something like that, which probably would make you feel really bad, just try to keep in mind, um, if you're late somewhere, is that going to affect someone else? And that just might be a little more incentive to uh, look after a lot of these other tips we've talked about, not trying to do more one more thing, being more mindful of the commute, and so on. And lastly, number eight, tips for staying on time. Do you hate your destination so much that you want to postpone showing up for as long as possible? Wow. So if you dread going to work that much, assuming we're talking about work, or maybe it's school that you hate so deeply, or wherever your destination might be, you're giving yourself a clear signal that you need to think about making a change in your life. Well, that presumes that you have the opportunity to make a change. While the economy and the employment situation is a lot better than it was during the height of the recession, it's still not quite as easy as it once was to change jobs if you're not happy with the one you're in now. And school, well, let's face it, without that degree, uh, you're not really going to get where you need to be. So again, your options are limited. Um, <clears throat> so I'm not really sure how helpful that tip is. Um, I guess insofar as it gives you the realization that, okay, this is why I'm late, but it's not really helping me uh, to be late, even though I'm not happy about where I'm going. And uh, maybe consider it a temporary condition uh, if it's school that you're unhappy about going to, you know eventually you're going to finish and get your degree. Or if it's taking longer than you thought it would, maybe uh, the, this realization would give you the drive to finish it on time, if not a little faster, so that you would not have to get there anymore. And if it's a job that you dread going to, uh, maybe that would give you the impetus to uh, look around for something else. Even if it takes you a while to find something, uh, someplace eventually you'd be happier going to and therefore more likely to be on time. All right, well, I hope some of you found those interesting and helpful. Next up on Psychiatry Today, forgiving others protects women from depression, but not men. Interestingly enough, Results of this study may help counselors develop gender-appropriate interventions. Researchers studied how different facets of forgiveness affected aging adults' feelings of depression. Older women who forgave others were less likely to report depressive symptoms regardless of whether they felt unforgiven by others. Older men, however, reported the highest levels of depression when they both forgave others and felt unforgiven by others. This may help counselors of older adults develop gender-appropriate interventions. 
since men and women process forgiveness differently. It doesn't feel good when we perceive that others haven't forgiven us for something. When we think about forgiveness and characteristics of people who are forgiving, altruistic, compassionate, empathetic, these people forgive others and seem to compensate for the fact that others aren't forgiving them. Those people are more likely to forgive others, which appears to help decrease levels of depression, particularly for women. An older population was studied because older people tend to reflect on their lives as those who were wrongdoers and those who had been experienced being wronged. And as people get older, they become more forgiving. Men and women who feel unforgiven by others are somewhat protected against depression when they are able to forgive themselves. Yet the researchers said they were surprised to find that forgiving oneself didn't more significantly reduce levels of depression. It's really about whether individuals can forgive other people and their willingness to forgive others. All right, we've got to wrap up tonight's show quickly. hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.